Hello, everybody. Greetings and welcome to the first ever edition of the Undercover Bubble Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Moore, and I'm very happy you could be with me here today. So before I begin, I'd just like to uh, introduce myself a bit, since this is the first ever edition of this podcast, and sort of go through a template of what you can expect out of the Undercover Bubble Podcast. So for those of you who don't know me personally, my name's Patrick Moore, I'm 31 years old, and I'm a Republican, or at least I'm pretending to be. So the idea of the Undercover Bubble podcast, it actually came out of a blog that I wrote a couple of years ago where I did nothing but consume conservative media sources. So Fox News, uh, The Federalist, even like Infowars and stuff like that. And all I did, I, I didn't get any of my news from anywhere else other than these sources. So I basically did what it seems that most conservatives do these days, which is just stay within your bubble and only get your information from within this bubble. And what I found is that I ended up within two weeks basically living in a completely different world than what was actually happening because the conservative media bubble just skews news so far to their perspective that after a while of watching it, you're not even sure if you're in the same world anymore as you are from, you know, normal news networks. And I'm speaking from a completely neutral perspective here, no political bias. But uh, if you're a conservative who gets news like this, from only these sources every day, you're going to think that this is what's actually happening, even though it's not. <laughs> it's like what Trump said a couple years back, you know, what you're seeing and what you're hearing isn't what's happening. Only in this case, ironically, he's actually right, because what you're seeing and what you're hearing in conservative news media typically isn't what's actually happening. And that's not to say that conservative media sources don't have their moments where they report facts. They do. Especially if you don't watch the, you know, Hannity's and Laura Ingram's of Fox News and similar networks. If you just watch the news stuff, like, usually what they're telling you is what's happening. But they do definitely skew it to their perspective. So in any case... I did this experiment where I only consumed conservative media sources, and my original goal was to see how long I would last, and I ended up lasting a little over two weeks, I think, because this was around the time where the separation of children from their parents at the immigration detention facilities was just coming to light, and the day I quit was the day that Jeff Sessions basically came out and used a Bible verse to sort of defend the actions of the administration of separating the children. And then I turned on Fox News, and all they did was defend him. And, you know, I, I thought, in all my good conscience, I can't do this anymore. So I shut down the blog, and I thought that was the end of it. But then uh, fate intervened, shall we say. So basically, long story short, my... Uh, ability to get any other media source other than Fox News on TV is no longer active. So Fox News is literally the only source of news that I can get now other than the internet. So I figured, you know, 
why not use it to my advantage? Why not restart the blog? Only this time, instead of just consuming conservative media sources, what I'm going to do is still mainly get my news from these sources, but when I see something that sounds fishy or that seems too crazy to be true or, I mean, we're going to get into plenty of that today, but, you know, anything like that that seems kind of suspicious, I can look it up. I can research it. I can look up stories uh, from, you know, non-biased news sources like the Associated Press or something like that and basically sort of delve into how they're wrong and why they're wrong. And so that's what I'm going to be trying to do with this podcast is sort of watch Fox News so you don't have to. (laughs) And it's not just Fox News that I'm going to be referencing in this podcast, although today I'm going to focus mainly on Fox News because that's mostly what I've paid attention to this week. And especially with the um, interview that President Trump did which I will get to. So in any case, I'll just sort of give you a brief overview of how this podcast is going to work. So first off, at the beginning of every podcast, I'm going to just go over the news for the week from a conservative perspective. So I've been watching Fox News all week. I've been reading stories on Breitbart and The Federalist and Infowars all week. And I will be referencing those stories. Basically, I'll be referencing the real-life happenings and how they're being presented in the conservative media bubble. After this, I'll be focusing on a single event that happened during the week, how it was portrayed in conservative media, and my personal response to it, as well as what actually happened and sort of the issues that I see between the conservative perspective and the non-biased media perspective. And after that, we're going to have a little fun in a segment I like to call the weirdest thing I saw this week. And basically, I'm going to take one conservative story or interview or video or something that I saw in the week, show it to you guys and deconstruct it. And it's always going to be entertaining. I can guarantee you that. So again, thank you for joining me. I hope you're all staying safe out there, by the way. Um, Don't believe what the conservative media says. And trust me, they said it plenty this week. Stay home, wear a mask, wash your hands. It's that simple, folks. I I really don't get why it's so hard for hardcore conservatives and the alt-right to accept that masks work, that social distancing works. I mean, if you look at photos from the 1918 Spanish flu, everyone's wearing masks. You know why? Because they work. This whole culture of mask shaming and... Protesting social distancing, I just I just don't get it. Like, even as the purpose of this podcast is to delve into the conservative mind, and I try and do that as best I can, I just still don't get it. But in any case, I digress. So let's just go ahead and jump right into what's happened this week in conservative news. So the fine folks over at Fox News have been talking a lot about the protests this week, in particular the defund the police movement and supposed violence against police and sort of the unintended consequences of what the protests have wrought on liberal cities specifically. They make sure to always sort of remind you that all the bad stuff that we're seeing about the shootings, the lootings, the robbings, the 
killings, the drugs, the sex. It's all happening in liberal cities. And not only is it only happening in liberal cities, liberals specifically are to blame for everything that's happening. And they fail to mention that the vast majority of protests that we see from George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and the defund the police movement and all that, they've been peaceful. But if you're watching Fox News this week, you wouldn't think that. You'd think that everything in New York and Chicago, everything's going to hell. There's rampant lootings and shootings and violence, and they spent a good two days talking about that one guy who hit a policeman on the head with a cane from from over a fence. They spent hours talking about this and how it was the liberals' fault and how the cities are run amok with violence because the defund the police movement has defunded the police. And, and the fact is that, yes, violence has increased a good amount from last year. But the truth is, number one... Even with this increase, violence is still at historically low rates compared to previous years. And number two, no one's really sure why the violence has increased. There's a lot of theories. Some of them have to do with uh, Black Lives Matter and the protests, and a lot of them have to do with COVID-19. And the fact that because of COVID-19, a lot of uh, court dates either aren't happening or have been delayed. So a lot of these people who should be in jail are back out on the streets. And then there's another theory that basically there was bail reform enacted in New York earlier in the year. I don't think it had anything to do with COVID or the Black Lives Matter protests. And less people are um, being assigned bail. And so because of that, officers rather than indicting people when they arrest them, just kind of release them. So the truth is, there's a lot of different factors that you need to take into account when you're talking about the increase in violence in places like New York and Chicago. But for the most part, there's really no real single scapegoat. And I think that actually pisses a lot of Republicans off. Because the way they get elected, and the way historically they've stayed in power is by assigning a scapegoat to people's problems. And we saw it in 2004 and 2008 when the Bush and McCain campaigns basically tried to pin everyone's problems on gay marriage and gay people. And then obviously we saw it again in 2016 when Trump blamed all the problems that the U.S. was having on illegal immigrants. So the truth is, there are a lot of factors going into what's causing the increase in violence in these cities. And probably the reality is that these movements do have something to do with it. But to immediately shift all of the blame onto the movements themselves and calling them supporters of that violence, along with the mayors, along with the governors who are doing the best they can to please everybody, to shift all of the blame onto them and say it's a democratic liberal problem is just wrong. It's completely unfounded. And I'm going to give you an example of how Fox News specifically tried to pin the blame of these protests and this violence on the movement itself. And a lot of times when they try to do this blame game, 
it oftentimes makes the movement, the protest movement, Black Lives Matter and defund the police and all that actually look better and more peaceful. And sometimes they even end up agreeing with them. So uh, the example I have of that is, I think it was on Wednesday, I was watching Judge Janine as a guest on Tucker Carlson. And uh, by the way, one of the things that Fox News absolutely loves to do, I've found in the week that I've been watching them, is to put one of the hosts of their other shows on as a guest of another show. So it's, it's almost like they have their own little buddy system and whenever they want a point of view validated and reinforced, they'll just send one of their own hosts on to basically become an echo chamber and say, yeah, this is what's really happening. So anyway, uh, they had Judge Janine on, Tucker Carlson, and she was talking about, uh, I think it was the protest in New York, and she said something to the effect of, the peaceful protests were interrupted by a group who were violent. And this was in the midst of talking about uh, the guy who whacked the policeman in the head with the cane. So they were trying to, you know, push the narrative that this is what the mob wants. This is what these movements are about is this violence. And so she said the peaceful protest was interrupted by a violent mob. And so my response to that was, so you're admitting that the protest was peaceful and that those who are violent are a small minority who are typically disowned by the protesters in general? Because she did actually say at some point in the interview, like the protesters that were there said they didn't condone violence. So it's like, so you're agreeing that they're not violent and yet you're trying to push this narrative that the Black Lives Matter and defund the police movements are inherently violent. And it's, it's just not true. And yet, in the same breath as saying those things, saying that the protesters, most of them weren't violent, she says the protest movement in general, which she just said is peaceful, is inciting violence against police and, quote, trying to bring the country down. And this is a common refrain we see a lot in conservative news, and Fox News especially, is that anyone who's not a hardcore alt-right conservative is trying to bring the country down, is trying to destroy the country. And that's why, on a, just a little bit of a side note here, this is why the Make America Great Again slogan that Trump adopted was so effective. Because if there's one thing that the right knows how to do really well, it's stoke fear. It's fear monger. Everything is coming to kill you. They're going to take your guns. They're going to take your freedom. They're going to take your jobs. They're going to take your children. They're going to re-educate your children that being gay is not only okay, but better than being straight. I mean, it, it just goes on and on and on. The point is that when people are scared, they want a simple, straightforward, and easy-to-understand solution. And Trump had four words that just rang all the bells in these people's heads. Make America great again. Because not only does it imply that America is not great right now, which goes with the fear-mongering, it says that the way to make it great again is by believing in gut feelings, believing in simplicity, eschewing the uh, establishment liberal intellectuals, and just saying, America's not great, we're going to make it great. 
And that's why it was so effective to conservatives in particular, because they'd been looking for a message like that ever since Obama took office. And also, I believe that there's more than a slight hint of racism in the way that Trump ran his campaign and his slogan, but I could talk about that another time. So anyway, I'm going to move on to another story I saw this week, which is that um, the homeless crisis in San Francisco is kind of spiraling out of control if you read the conservative media. So what they were talking about is the fact that in San Francisco, in order to help combat the spread of COVID-19, the government has moved a lot of homeless people into hotels and basically said, we're going to do this until COVID-19 is no longer a threat and then we'll let them out. And so, you know, on the surface, this sounds like a good idea. And I fully support it because, number one, it helps take care of the homeless problem, which I would assume in San Francisco is substantial because it's so expensive to live there. And number two, the less people there are on the streets, the less people there are to spread COVID around. And make no mistake, folks, COVID is a serious disease, despite what the downplaying of it on Fox News and other conservative outlets might have you believe. COVID is a deadly and serious disease. And we all need to adjust our lives until it's under control. But in any case, what this story was talking about, and they spent a good amount of time on it, on I think it was Hannity, is that there are apparently reports coming out of these homeless hotels of drug-fueled parties, rapes, sexual assaults, and deaths. And one of them even went so far as to say, you know, they're giving them needle kits and giving them booze and advising them to call the front desk before they shoot up and just insane things like that. And they were talking about this on a major news show on a major news network. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to take them at their word, but I am going to look into it more and see if I can figure out where these rumors are coming from. So I did some homework on the internet. And after about an hour of looking, I came up with the answer that all of these reports, and there were a bunch of like different sites with the same report, they all came from a single source. First off, the only place I was able to find any articles referring to this happening were right-wing news sites. In other words, I did not see a single mention of anything resembling this story on any sort of reputable news source, whether it be the Associated Press or anything like that. So this story only circulated on right-wing news sites, red flag number one. Red flag number two, every single uh, right-wing site that I went to with this story on it basically said the exact same thing, almost verbatim on each site. And number three, each story always referenced the same article. And this article was written in the City Journal in San Francisco by Erica Sandberg, who, as it says in the author's byline, is a consumer finance reporter. But in any case, she wrote this article basically just describing this whirlwind of chaos and lawlessness and drugs and debauchery. Basically saying all the stuff that I just said earlier, you know, they're calling the front desk to shoot up heroin. They're handing out free booze and drugs and marijuana to everybody. And the thing is, when she goes into, like, how she knows this, all it says is, 
one source, one source, one source. And now I'm not saying that she's lying. Let's be clear. Like the truth is we don't know who to believe. And that's sort of the whole point I'm trying to make here is that when you see a story like this come up and do some digging and find that it reaches a dead end like this one has, because I mean, let's look at the facts here. This is the only story I've been able to find in the entire internet that references these things happening. And she just says, one source says this, one source says this. And that's the only real source of information that we get for this entire article. And by the way, I highly encourage you guys, if you're interested in seeing what she actually said, to check out the article yourselves. Just Google City Journal Sandberg Homeless, and it's going to be the first link that pops up. But in any case, what I'm trying to say is if you see a story like this that you do some research on and nothing really comes of it, you got to take it with a serious grain of salt because I'm, I'm not accusing her of I'm not accusing her of lying. Let's put it that, that out there right now. I'm not saying none of this is happening. I'm saying that to paint a picture of this as being a rampant problem without any major real reporting on it being done is disingenuous and to report that as news is even more disingenuous and if you ask me a complete insult to the career of journalism so there you go that's that's my uh, soapbox speech for today so let's move on to one of my favorite topics of the week which is joe biden And oh boy, does Fox News love to hammer on Joe Biden, specifically his senility and his age. I I can't say that there's probably been 10 minutes that have gone by of me watching any sort of Fox News programming without somebody commenting on how old Biden is and how much he's gone off the deep end and how crazy he is. And they've shown montages of him making what would be considered like minor speech ticks that most people probably make anyway. They love to hammer on Joe Biden. And what's interesting is when they hammer on Joe Biden, while they do do those personal attacks, they seem to spend most of the time attacking the people that Biden associates with. So it came out, you know, that Biden is sort of taking the other more leftist Democrats under his wing. So he's having Bernie help him with his economic plan. He's having AOC helping him with his environmental plan. And so Fox, you know, being Fox, just jumped on this immediately. And they're all saying, you know, oh, Joe Biden's now under the control of the super left-wing people. Joe Biden is a slave to the far left and just things like this. And what I find interesting about this is it seems like they're not trying to attack Biden for his character so much as they're attacking the people he associates with. And let me explain why I think that is. It's actually quite simple. Joe Biden is a good, honest, intelligent man. He has never done anything controversial. He is as vanilla a candidate as you could possibly ask for. And because of that, there's no gotcha that the conservative media bubble can pin on him. 
with Obama, you know, they could sort of play on minorly on the fact that he's black. With Hillary, they could play on the fact that she's a woman. They could play on the fact that she was married to Bill, who had his own set of problems. They could play on the emails. But in any case, there's nothing to pin on Joe Biden. He hasn't done anything bad in his entire political career. So because of that, and I said earlier, Republicans love scapegoating. They can't scapegoat him. He is unscapegoatable. So rather than attack him, they attack the people he associates with. He's a well-respected, long-tenured member of politics who hasn't had any major scandals or botched decisions. And so conservatives have to find a way to attack him that don't involve his character. And it's hard for them because Republicans have historically won by attacking the character of whoever they're running against. And there are multiple examples of this throughout the last 30, 40 years, but probably the two best known ones are first Willie Horton. And for those of you who don't know, um, this was an ad that was run in the 1988 presidential campaign by Bush Sr. And he basically accused Dukakis, the Democratic nominee, of giving weekend passages to murderers and rapists. Basically saying Dukakis wants to free murderers and rapists so that they can go out and murder and rape again, which combines, you know, two of their favorite things, fear-mongering and scapegoating. Even though it was clear later on that this was what happened with Willie Horton was clearly not his fault. It didn't matter because it was associated with him now. And because it was associated with him, people were less likely to vote for him. And Bush Sr. won the election. And then the second example is swift boating. And for those of you who were either too young or don't remember, swift boating is actually a fairly recent phenomenon. And it came to being in 2004 when George Bush was running against John Kerry. And in this campaign, there was a super PAC called Swift Boat Veterans for Truth. And basically what they did was they ran nonstop ads completely attacking John Kerry's character. Basically ignoring his policy stance, ignoring his, you know, track record, and just saying, John Kerry is a bad person. He left me behind in Vietnam. He was not a hero. And just attacked his war record, attacked his character, attack, attack, attack. And actually, it turned out that they had to pay a bunch of money because what they were doing technically wasn't allowed. They're only allowed, super PACs at the time were only allowed to support positions and not support or attack candidates. But in any case, these Swift Boat ads got so much traction that it basically guaranteed George W. Bush an electoral victory. All because they just attacked his character instead of attacking him on the issues. So that's what swift boating is. But anyway, because they can't do that with Joe Biden, he's unswift boatable because he's such a good guy. 
And they can't really attack his record because he's never done anything controversial. So what do they do? They say he's associating with these people and that makes him dangerous. Well, we've seen that before in U.S. history too, haven't we? They're associating with communists. They must be dangerous. They're associating with black people. They must be dangerous. So just take everything you hear about Biden from conservative sources with a grain of salt. And Trump, too. I can't, I can't count on all of my fingers and toes how many times they praised Trump's presidency and said that he went in a landslide despite the polls. It actually got a little bit uh, irksome to hear all of these people saying the exact same thing over and over again. And there's one thing that I always say, and it applies mainly to politics, but it can apply to anything, which is if you say something loud enough and often enough, no matter how scary or weird or unbelievable it sounds, eventually people will start to believe it. And Trump understood that better than I think any other Republican candidate I've ever seen. He just kept hammering in immigrants to the problem, build the wall, build the wall, build the wall. And eventually people started coming around. This is why he was a joke when he first started his campaign and then ended up being the president. But um, in any case, that was the rundown of stories that we've seen in conservative news this week. And I'd like to move on now to Donald Trump's interview with Fox News that came yesterday afternoon. And, uh, oh boy, it was, it was something. So let's get to it, shall we? Uh, the first thing that Trump talked about in the interview was what's on everyone's mind, which is COVID-19. And despite the fact that this morning he issued a tweet basically supporting masks, he still downplayed the effects of the virus, downplayed the importance of wearing masks, said, you don't have to do it. I, I like them, but you don't have to do it. But uh, most importantly, he seriously misrepresented the death toll that coronavirus is having on the people of this country. He said multiple times that people who die from COVID might not be dying from COVID because they count the people who die for, with COVID from something else as deaths from COVID, which might be true, but that does not explain how uh, over 140,000 people have died from this virus while no other country is even close. But in any case, there was sort of a funny moment where Trump basically said, oh, well, we had the best mortality rate in the world. If you look at other countries, they're nowhere near as good as the United States. And then uh, Wallace to his credit, basically said, but sir, that's not true. Fox, in other words, actually corrected the president when he misinterpreted his own data. According to Johns Hopkins, we're actually the seventh worst death rate per 100,000 people of any civilized country with the virus. He then moved on to talk about supplies saying that he supplied everybody and that they're, they're supposed to have supplies, but he supplied everybody anyway. And uh, my response to that is, what about at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, if anybody can even remember back that far, when he basically, he had a phone call with all the governors and basically told them, 
if you're not at my knees begging me for medical supplies, I'm not going to send them to you. They're going to have to ask me and ask me nicely. I'm pretty, that's not exactly what he said, but it was something to that effect. And so basically what he said in this interview was they were supposed to have the supplies already, but we sent supplies to them anyway. And the problem with that statement is he didn't send supplies right away. There were stories at the time of people having to go through like third party and pirate ships and Chinese vessels and masking their uh, shipments just so that they could get shipments of personal protective equipment, PPE. The federal government was actually taking PPE shipments away from hospitals so that they'd have to buy them from the government or from companies that the government gave them to or sold them to, which, by the way, were overwhelmingly either supporters of Trump or friends of family members of Trump. I mean, I'm not even going to get into how unbelievably, unimaginably corrupt that is. But in any case, Trump basically wanted the leaders of each state to grovel at his feet for medical supplies before he sent them to him. And so he's like, oh, I've supplied everybody. Yeah, now he has. And even then it's not enough. And it was too late. The major problem, I am fully convinced, with the United States and COVID-19 is that there was not a single unified federal response to it. And that, I am 100% convinced, is absolutely Trump's fault. He downplayed it from the beginning. He said it would go away like a miracle. And guess what? It didn't. And as far as I'm concerned, the deaths of those 140,000 Americans, probably going to be upwards of 200,000 before this is all over, are on his hands. And also, he tried to downplay the virus by basically saying, oh, young people don't get it. They get the sniffles and then they're better. Which, again, is just unconscionable that he could downplay a virus that's killed 140,000 people like that. But he also went back to a common refrain that he likes to repeat whenever he's asked these type of questions, which is, cases are up because testing is up, and if we tested less, there'd be less cases. And to his credit, he did say, I'm glad we didn't do that, but I think the only reason he said, he kind of just snuck it in there. And the only reason he said that, I think, was to make sure that they couldn't attack him for saying that anymore. So that he could just get it out there and get it out of the way. Kind of like his mask tweet this morning. He can, because he has the tweet supporting masks. Now he can say, see, I support masks. And the interesting thing about that is throughout the interview, whenever they talked about COVID, he kept saying, oh, Anthony Fauci didn't support masks. Anthony Fauci didn't support masks. Anthony Fauci didn't support masks. But the thing is, number one, he was told by the government to say that. He was told by the government to say, there is no danger. You don't need to wear a mask. Number two, and this is something that apparently is not in Trump's vocabulary at all, he changed his mind. It became apparent that masks definitely helped prevent the spread of COVID. So even after saying you didn't need them, he went on air again and said, yeah, remember what I said about masks? Now you need them. Because let's be clear, in the world of Trump, and the alt-right, you are not allowed to change your stance at all for any reason whatsoever. It's like the Constitution is set in stone. You know, changing your stance 
is a sign of weakness. Changing your stance is saying that you didn't really support what you supported in the first place. And changing your stance is akin to treason. That's the alt-right narrative. That's the Trumpian political doctrine. You cannot change your stance at all. So that's why you see this sort of delicate dance that Trump likes to do of saying, you know, Mexicans are are rapists, but some, I assume, are good people. Don't wear a mask, and wearing a mask might impinge on your freedoms. But I tweeted out that I support mask wearing, and it's patriotic, so it's okay now. The point is that he, when he does these kinds of things, basically makes one point and then immediately tries to swivel to the opposite part of it. The reason he does this is so that he can simultaneously pander to his base, which we all know Trump loves to do, appease the critics on the other side so they can't accuse him of taking a completely crazy stance, but at the same time, he doesn't fully commit to that side either so that he can maintain his position of not having changed positions, even when it somehow feels like he kind of has. But in any case, when he was talking about testing, he went into how the U.S. has more tests than anyone else in the entire world. And then he went on to explain that our testing is up. And because the testing is up, that's cases are up. And what Chris Wallace said, to his credit again, is tests, we actually looked at this for you. And tests are up 37%, but cases are up 192%. So um, the short explanation for that is... The amount of rising tests that we've had in the U.S. over the last month doesn't even come close to accounting for the amount of new cases that we've had of COVID-19. And when he was confronted with this fact, Trump predictably tried to shift the blame over to China. And he basically said they don't test. And then he was also talking about how uh, Germany and France and all those European countries, they don't test anymore. And look, they're not getting COVID anymore. Yeah. Because they don't have an outbreak like we do anymore. They don't need to test as much. Unlike the United States, they actually had federal governments that had unified responses to this pandemic. And as a result, their caseload has gone way down, while ours is still climbing exponentially. But in talking about this virus and saying that the U.S. has had the best response, he continued to downplay it. And then turned right around and said, young people heal automatically from COVID-19. And I can tell you, as someone who knows at least two people personally who have gotten COVID-19, it is not fun. One of the people I know who had it took over two months to fully recover. And even then, they're still having breathing issues. They still feel like their chest is being pressed on. This, this is an absolutely devastating, deadly disease. And to downplay it as something that's not, even for young people, it's, it's wrong. It's just straight up wrong. And interestingly, when Chris Wallace sort of confronted him on this and said, you're downplaying this virus, but it's killed 140,000 people. Can't you admit that you made a mistake about how serious it was? Trump said something to the effect of, Oh, well, you make mistakes, too. Everybody makes mistakes. And this actually is an interesting point because it goes right into the Trumpian doctrine that I was talking about earlier. And number one on the docket of the Trumpian doctrine 
is never admit defeat, never admit you're wrong, never admit you're losing. And if you notice, if you look at other interviews of him, when people are accusing him of doing something wrong or saying, do you regret something? He never straight up says, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. And that just goes into how he's always acted, both in business and in politics. Never apologize. You never did anything wrong, no matter how bad it was or how badly it turned out. And we saw this approach again later in the interview when Trump was asked about his poll numbers and saying that every major poll has him down by almost double digits or in some cases more than double digits. And his first response to that was, I'm not losing. Those are fake polls. And again, never admit you're losing. And then he and then he went so far as to say, I have a poll where I'm leading in every swing state. So after he said that, I wrote that down and I was like, huh, I'm going to go see if I can find this poll. And sure enough, I did actually find a poll that found Trump leading in every swing state. But there's a catch. It was not a recent poll. It was not done in July. It wasn't even done in June. This poll was part of a Washington Examiner story that came out May 13th. Now think about that. That was two months ago. Where were we two months ago? The first bout of the coronavirus was sort of starting to come down after it had originally peaked. And a lot of places were starting to reopen. Here in California, we had our first round, I believe it was phase one of reopening around that time. So at that time, when things were looking up and the economy was still rosy and Biden hadn't really solidified his position yet. He was kind of laying low because of the coronavirus epidemic. Yeah, I could see Trump leading the swing states then. But now, that was literally the only story I could find that showed Trump leading in all the swing states. And it was from two months ago. So he's referencing a poll that was two months old. And at that point, he was only behind Biden nationally by five points on average. So... The only story that I could find that showed him leading in those polls was from two months ago. So that just shows you he is willing to go anywhere, even back in time, to try and find stories that support his viewpoint. And who knows, maybe he didn't even know about that. He could have been making it up on the spot. In fact, I would almost bet that he was. (laughs) But anyway, so one thing I do want to give credit to, and I probably already have, is Chris Wallace, who, despite the fact that he is definitely a conservative commentator who is on a network that, for the most part, has really sort of ridden Trump's coattails and praised him every chance it gets, and still does, he actually asked some pretty hard-hitting questions and really conducted the interview quite well for someone who's supposed to be on Trump's side. He was actually a fairly, you know unbiased moderator of facts and information and wasn't afraid to call Trump out when he saw that he was lying. And it was just really well done. I I tip my hat to you, sir. But uh, my favorite example of this, and the one I want to end this segment of the show with, is on the cognitive test. And Trump spent a pretty good amount of time on this cognitive test basically saying how smart he was because he beat it and 
saying that if Joe Biden were to take it, he wouldn't be able to finish it because he's old and senile. And actually, Chris Wallace at one point straight up asked Trump, do you think Joe Biden is senile? And true to Trumpian fashion, he could not give a straight answer. He didn't say Joe Biden was senile. He didn't say Joe Biden wasn't senile. He kind of just danced around the question, really kind of saying, oh, well, I'm smarter than him. And then he'd go off on some other tangent, like on the economy or China or whatever. But anyway, so what happened was Chris Wallace basically called him out and said, okay, well, I've taken a look at the test that you took, and it's in... It's not hard, I believe was the terminology he used. It's like, it's pretty easy. It's basically, they show you a picture of an elephant and ask you, what is this? And also, at no point does Trump say when he took the test. All he said was very recently and why he took the test. Which begs the question, why did he take the test? My guess is, and I'm just completely speculating here, that they probably gave it to him when he had that unexplained medical episode that sent him to the hospital a few months back. But anyway, he says he took this cognitive test and the doctors were impressed that he passed it. And he doesn't think that Joe Biden could pass it. And Chris Wallace's response is, well, it's actually pretty easy. They just, one of the questions is they ask you what the date is and where you are. And Trump then said something that was uh, very eye-opening which is, I'll bet you couldn't do it. Some of those, yeah, some of them are easy, but some of the questions are also really hard, especially like the last five questions are really hard. So with that in mind, I'd like to take a look at the cognitive test that he took and specifically the last five questions that he said were, quote, really hard. So let's do that, shall we? I have the test here in front of me. It's been up on all the news outlets. You can just look for Trump cognitive test and it'll show up. And the last five questions have to do with language, abstraction, delayed recall, and orientation. You know, pretty, pretty big sounding words, big, beautiful words. So let's, let's go through the actual questions. Now, it, this, this test doesn't actually list what the questions are, but it does list the instructions for asking the questions. So I can sort of discern what the questions actually were from this sort of cheat sheet that they have here. So anyway, the first one is language, and it just asks you to repeat a certain phrase. So in this case, it's, I only know that John is the one to help today. So basically, the proctor says that phrase and then asks the testee to repeat the phrase back to them. So that's question one of these five questions that he said were very hard. Question two, name maximum number of words in one minute that can begin with the letter F. And if they can name more than 11 words in a minute, then they're fine. Then they get the full points. Again, not a hard thing to do. Third question, abstraction. Basically saying, here's two objects. We're going to name two objects. What is alike about these two objects? The example they give is, they say banana and orange. How are they alike? They're both fruit. So they give, that's what they do. They basically ask you to associate two words with another one. Again, pretty easy. And then there's delayed recall. So basically they'll give you a list of five words 
they'll say those words to you and then I guess they'll wait a little while and it doesn't say how long and then you have to repeat those words back to them and if you can do so without having to get any hints you get full points again a pretty easy thing to do and then finally the last question on the test orientation and all there is is check marks for date month year day place and city which I assume means all they do is they ask you where are you and what's the date again fairly simple so let's think about that for a second Trump is bragging like almost beyond belief that he took this cognitive test at Walter Reed Medical Center and he said the doctors were surprised that he was able to pass it perfectly. And he doesn't think Joe Biden could take it. He thinks the last five questions are hard. And yet, when you look at the test itself, it's something that a five-year-old would be able to pass easily. Now, what does that tell you about Trump? I'll tell you what it tells me about Trump. It tells me that He's insecure. There's no other way of saying it. He's insecure. He has a fragile ego. And the way I've seen people with insecurity and fragile ego sort of deal with it is that they project their own insecurities onto other people. And this explains why he handles it the way that he does in this interview. Because... Deep down in his soul, Trump does not see himself as a smart person, but he's trying so hard to convince himself that he is, he wants to project this insecurity that he has on himself onto whoever is causing it. In this case, it's Chris Wallace. And when Chris Wallace asks him about this test and says how easy it is, his response is to say, oh, well, I bet you couldn't take it. You probably couldn't answer those last five questions. And the interesting thing about this response is that it plays right into the Trumpian doctrine of never admit defeat, never admit you're wrong. And to tie this back into the experiment I'm doing now with this podcast, it really seems like Fox News in particular has fully embraced this idea of the Trumpian political doctrine. You will never see them admit to a mistake on air. If you do, it's very rare. It does happen. I've seen it happen, but it's very rare. You'll never see anyone on Fox News saying, we misreported this and we apologize. And the reason for this goes back to my original view of the conservative media bubble, which I talked about in the beginning of the podcast. The whole point of the bubble is that that is the only media you consume. And to admit that there's a mistake means that you question the entire reality of the bubble. So admitting a mistake, admitting defeat, apologizing for misrepresenting something, defeats the whole purpose of having the bubble in the first place. You want to keep people in, and you want them to stay in, even if staying in means that you completely misrepresent the facts or make up your own facts. As we'll see in some of the more right-wing, alt-right media sources like InfoWars, for example. Uh, I can't wait to get into InfoWars next week. I love me some Alex Jones. But uh, anyway, with that in mind, I'd like to close the podcast by relaying to you all the weirdest thing I saw this week. 
All right, here we go. So the weirdest thing that I saw this week goes to Rebecca Friedrichs. She's a former school teacher who was a guest on Laura Ingram's show on Tuesday night. They were talking about the fact that schools had closed and they were worried about what was happening to the children. And so they brought on Miss Friedrichs to sort of elaborate on what kinds of things might be happening because the schools were closed. And this is what she said. The unions are using the closure of our schools as a smokescreen. Laura, here's why. Sadly, these unions are actually using our schools to sexualize our children and to uh, train them in anti-American ideology. They do this with a coalition of over 180 organizations, including, sadly, the CDC, Planned Parenthood, and Black Lives Matter Incorporated. It is shocking what they're teaching our children online through virtual learning. They're teaching our children to sext to view pornography. They are hooking them up with online sex experts. So what they are doing is grooming our children for sexual predators to use them. This is child abuse. I have an editorial about this tomorrow online in the Washington Times. People can read and learn all the details. This is one of the big reasons the unions want to keep our schools closed because they can sneak these evil lessons past loving teachers who have no idea. That's right, folks. Not only are the schools closed because of the teachers' unions and not because of COVID-19, the teachers' unions want to keep the schools closed so that they can sexualize our children. They're learning sex. They're learning pornography. They're hooking up with online sex experts. They want your children to become prostitutes and sexual slaves. Because that's what the teachers' union is all about, sexualizing and enslaving children. I mean, <laughs> is, is she serious? I mean, apparently she is. And not only is this a teachers' union problem, it's a collaboration of a hundred and whatever forces with the CDC and Black Lives Matter and defund the police. It's all a hoax, ladies and gentlemen, to sexualize our children, to turn them into sexual beasts. I mean, it's, it's an insane. But, you know, it's my job to take anything I hear on Fox News seriously. So, like any good citizen, I decided, okay, I'm going to go ahead and look up these absolutely mind-boggling claims. So the only thing I was able to find that even pointed to any of this was an opinion piece that she wrote. And let me say it again. It's an opinion piece that she wrote for the Washington Times that basically says everything that she said in the interview. And her reasoning, and I'm reading directly from the article here, is... As good teachers scrambled to deliver virtual reading and math instruction, the coalition, by which she means the teachers' unions, slipped pornographic material into teacher resources and encouraged educators to give students access. Now, I'm not sure what her definition of pornographic material is. Maybe it's just, you know, a painting from the Renaissance of a naked lady. We may never know. But in any case... It says, among other scandalous lessons, kids can obtain five tips for your sexual health during COVID-19. Her tips encouraging kids to engage in sexting, solo sex, pornography, self-dating, and communications with online sex experts. Okay, so let me stop you right there, because there is a huge difference between 
providing teenagers, who I assume is the intended audience for this material, between providing teenagers much-needed resources about sexual health and grooming kids for child pornography. And it's just... The fact that she could say that this connects them to people like Epstein and saying that she's gro- they're grooming kids for sexual slavery, it's, it's crazy. It's absolutely insane. And it's the weirdest thing that I saw this week. So before I sign off today, I'd like to give all of you guys a sort of thank you present for making it this far into the first episode of my podcast. So... As an avid consumer of Fox News, because that's my job now, I have some trouble watching it sometimes, especially when they get into some of the stuff I talked about today. And I understand that probably a lot of you who are listening to this podcast don't watch Fox News. And I don't blame you. You're not the one who's making a podcast about it. But in any case, I'm going to give you a reason to watch Fox News. I've created something called Fox News Bingo, and I'm going to post a link to it on my podcast site, on my Facebook, on the Instagram, on the Twitter. Oh, God, I sound so old. On the Twitter and the Facebook! Anyway, that's where the link is going to be, and when I post that link, I'm going to be updating it every week with at least one new or changed bingo clue. So there's stuff such as mentioning an Obama scandal, uh, mentioning QAnon, mentioning how great Trump's presidency has been. So basically just all these things that Fox News has said, some of them are going to be easy, some of them are going to be not so easy, but it's all things that I've seen Fox News do at least once in both the time I watched them last week and the time that I was watching them for my original blog. So... I hope you all enjoy it. You're welcome to play along at home. And again, I'm going to post the link up to Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and the podcast site. So you all can play along at home too. And maybe you'll learn something about the conservative mindset. All right, folks, that's going to do it for this inaugural edition of the Undercover Bubble podcast. If you made it this far through, I want to thank you very much for listening. And I hope to see you all next week. Have a good one, folks.